So if we can come together and say, look, I think it is up to the younger people, the digital entrepreneurs in India to actually lay the foundations for a freer and richer India, because no one else can. The bottom of the pyramid, they do not have the ability, to, they are looking for their next meal. I mean, it will shock us all when I say that 800 million Indians are being given free food by the government every day. I mean, that's how poor we are as a nation. And this is changeable. In one term, we can actually set in place a nation which can become irreversibly prosperous, you know, on the path to irreversible prosperity. And uh, I think entrepreneurs should realize that it is in their self-interest. That's the only reason people should do it. It's in our self-interest to actually make a better country and create more wealth for our investors, our businesses, and ourselves and our employees. Deep conversations about what really matters with the best minds in business, startups, sports, music, and many more. This is the Best in Class podcast. So let me formally, you know, welcome you to the podcast, Rajesh. Thanks for making time. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. There's so much to learn from you, I think, given the, the breadth of your experience and the amount of things you have done in your life. So I am definitely looking forward to this. and. For all my listeners who I would doubt anybody would not know you, but in case they don't know you, a quick intro, Rajesh Jain is one of the doins of the industry, I would say, one of the first internet entrepreneurs of the country. He founded and sold India World to uh, Sifi back in the day, and then Netcore, which has been a, a multi-decade you know, internet company based in India. On top of this, he also does a lot of work with the government. He has amazing thoughts about economic freedom and how to make India a better place. There's so much to talk about. So I think, welcome Rajesh. And, and if I've missed anything in your introduction, please do add. No, that's fine, Arish. I don't do much now with the government, but I still have a lot of ideas on what the government should be doing. We can definitely <laughs> Yeah. So I think I, I went through your... Uh, website to collect information and do research for this podcast and I also made a lot of notes but I think broadly we can talk about a few areas right one would be obviously marketing and marketing technology I think that would be interesting to you and I but I think for the broader audience the other topics are far more interesting the second important one I would say is entrepreneurship and starting a company and your journey through the years on how your learnings have evolved as an entrepreneur how you started, what do you feel is the future of the, the tech world in India and so on. So I think there's a lot to be spoken there. So I want to spend a lot of time there. Third is I, I do understand you used to work with the government, but that has taken a backseat. But as you said, not just uh, government, but thinking about India as a whole and what could be done to make the country better. I think you have spent many years thinking about this problem statement. I have it. So I would want to learn from you on what are your thoughts, how, how we can help the country, you know, do better. And the last one is just your personal life, your habits, your routines. You're a prolific writer. Uh, you write every day. I can't believe the kind of discipline it takes to do something like that. So would love to hear from you on uh, that part as well. Yeah. Awesome. So let's start with entrepreneurship because I think that's one topic where I definitely want to learn a lot from you and I believe my listeners will have a lot to gain from this this conversation. So you were one of the first, I, I believe 1999 was the time when you sold your first company, all right? I, I believe it was started in 1995. Yes. 
this was probably India's big dot com moment, and that came from you. So let's start from very early days. Your background, you know, maybe your childhood, and then your first experience of jumping in and starting a company, and how that culminated in this moment of uh, celebration for the entire ecosystem back in the day. Sure, Arish. Uh, so I was born in uh, Mumbai. I'm basically Pune, but I grew up in Mumbai, uh, Bombay at that time. So standard education, you know, St. Xavier's high school, college, then got into IIT Bombay, spent my four years there, except the first semester where I tried to study very hard and I realized I will not be among the top few students. And then I got into cultural activities. So discovered a world outside in the period in uh, IIT. That was very good because that helped me open up from the sort of very bookish person that I yep. was. And then Columbia University. And uh, then I came back to India after working in the US for a couple of years. Hmm. Uh, the decision to come back was actually made for me by my father. Hmm. When I went, he said, All right, you finish your master's in nine months, work two years and come back because that's exactly what I had done. I mean, what he had done in the mid 60s. And that time when he came back, he had siblings to get married off. He had debt. Mm -hmm. um, he said, if I could do that, that time you come back um, and do, you can actually come back now. You don't have to stay there. And uh, so I came back in uh, mid 92 and I wanted to become an entrepreneur. I'd seen my father uh, through the years as an entrepreneur. He tried many different things and a few succeeded, many of them, but he never gave up. He kept trying. And so that Pretty much the decision to become an entrepreneur for me was made just looking at him that I have to do something on my own. And he never forced me to sort of join him. He had a consulting practice in civil engineering. He sort of a couple of factories in Rajasthan on edible oil for edible oil and marble and granite. But he never persuaded me to sort of come and join him. He said, do whatever you want. For the first two and a half years um, after I came back, I pretty much failed at everything I tried. Uh, I tried to do it with a colleague who had come back with me. We tried to do a software products company. Uh, we built, built an image processing product, a multimedia database. None of them worked. And then I realized that, look, you know, the, the, the way we were doing things and uh, we had to die. We had to give birth to something new. And it was a sort of low point for me in my life because I'd always thought that I was this brilliant guy from IIT, US educated. and uh, and, you know, till that time, I had never really known failure. Um, and I went back to the U.S. in late 94 for a couple months, spent time at a friend's place. And that was the time, Harish, when the early days of the internet, you know, the, the browsers were getting launched, uh, the connectivity was starting to come up, the dial-up connections were happening. And I used to read a lot. You know, my father would get a lot of these international magazines at home. So I had a gentle idea that, look, something called the internet is coming up and it can bridge distances. And in those two months I spent in the U.S., this idea about uh, creating a, a website to connect Indians worldwide, because it emanated from some of my own experiences. When I wanted to come back to India, it was very hard getting information on it. You know, the newspapers would take seven, 10 days. India Today would take a long time to come and so on. Uh, and that was the sort of foundation of the fact that we could create something which could bridge, become an electronic information marketplace to bridge Indians worldwide. And that is, so I came back, my, my partner uh, sort of separated out. He was not keen to go down this path. And I had to let go from about, we had 15, 16 people. I let go seven, eight people. 
Uh, I got married a year ago. I got my wife saying, look, I don't have to pay you. I don't have too much money left. So I got her involved in the business, which was really the smartest decision of my life. And uh, sort of I restarted. It was very different from software. It was more of media sort of business. I had to get content. You know, and uh, I wrote to a number of people in India. I didn't know anyone. I mean, as such, but I would write cold. We do cold calling now. I wrote cold uh, physical letters at that time. Saying, I need a meeting. India today, I remember Raj Chengappa met with me. I got a reply from Arun Puri. RK Lakshman met with me. And then once I had got these two sort of iconic entities on board, that they were open to sharing their content for NRIs, uh, managed to get a few others. And India World was launched in 95, March. Just to show you how early it was, we launched just around the time Yao and eBay did. And sometimes I wonder if I had made a site focused on Americans rather than Indians. <laughs> <laughs> a lot better, but yeah, so that was the early days. And over the next sort of four and a half years, the site developed a lot of ups and downs. A couple of years later, I realized, you know, coming up with Indian names would probably be better than just trying to create subdirectories like Yahoo had subsections and one portal. So that was the origin of uh, uh, samachar.com, khil.com, coach.com, bavarchi.com, which many people, older people even remember to this day. And right. those were the sites which really became popular. Samachar became the homepage for people in the US. Just a single page, automated, aggregated news on a single page. And uh, I tried to raise money multiple times in those four or five years and uh, never succeeded. And then in one month, I got two offers oh. uh, to sell. And DSP Merrill Lynch were my investment bankers. So essentially, it went from 40 million uh, stock deal, which uh, U.S. company, India.com, had offered $215 million from Stiffy, which had just done an IPO on NASDAQ, pretty much all cash, in just about a month. And it was, I mean, quite amazing that period. And it was just, be just before that, a few weeks before that, uh, a term sheet uh, had fallen through. And I was wondering, how will we raise money when everyone else was raising money? But life turned around completely uh, in that one month. And just to give an idea, we were, you know, because everyone talks of multiples of revenue. India World was three crores in revenue. So we sold 466 times revenue. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Almost 500 crores at that time. Right. The longest story, but sort of covers the entire thing. No, no, amazing story, Rajesh. And I didn't know most of the behind the scenes. So that is very helpful, <laughs> including getting your wife to work in the company. I think that's a master stroke. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, tell me this, how did you get into, I mean, so-called tech, right? Right now, we wouldn't call it tech, but at that time, it was, uh, dot-com was cutting-edge tech. So why this entrepreneurship bug into tech in the first place? You could have become a businessman anywhere else and, you know, followed your father's footsteps, maybe. So how tech happened? So that story goes back a little earlier. When I was growing up, my father would take me to some of the buildings. He was a, a civil, in, I mean, RCC specialist, so, you know, structural engineer, basically. I would, somehow, I would go as a kid with some to see some of the buildings. And my fascination that time was I wanted to build bridges, you know, somewhere. <laughs> I guess all of us have these childhood uh, fantasies. Now, what changed my life was in that, and this is my father was very prescient. I mean, in all these matters, used to read a lot. In 1982, just when I had entered college, he bought a computer in his office. A very small office. There were probably seven, eight people. But he said that, and it was a very big amount for him. You know, those computers used to be, they used to take up almost a whole room, very expensive. But his thing was that, look, this is going to be very important. 
Uh, he never touched it. He never knew how to use it. But he said, you know, maybe you should learn to how to use it. And very interestingly, at that time, my mother and I learned how to use the computer in his office. I taught myself basic programming. And I would go after college to his office, 11th standard. We didn't have much to do anyways. So, and I started writing some games. And that sort of started a love affair with computers. And that sort of changed the course of my life. I wanted to do something with computers. IIT, I didn't get into CS. I got into E electrical engineering. So it, I had to wait till the US when I rekindled my love with computers. Even when I went there, I took half my courses in the computer science department even though I was doing electrical engineering, and there was a lot of flexibility out there. So that was one part of the story. So after that, I was pretty clear that the computers were the future and I had to do something in software. I loved writing software at that time, just sitting there mm -hmm. and hearing things just out of, you know, typing or something on a keyboard effectively and using your brain. And so even when I came back as an entrepreneur, it had to be in sort of tech and software at that time. And even the internet, a lot of the stuff that we did, well, there was some, a lot of content, of course. At the back end, there were a lot of innovations that we did with software. You know, so Kale.com was, for example, had very good cricket statistics. Coach.com was a search engine. Basically, we just copied what Yahoo and uh, others were doing, Alta Vista and others that were doing at that time. So there was a lot of software at the back end, even though it was what people saw was content uh, yeah. at that time. And that's how sort of the, the interest had begun early on and sort of stayed there. And I guess that hasn't changed for the last 30 years. Awesome. Uh, amazing story, Rajesh. And uh, from there to now Netcore, right? Even that has been around for 20 plus years. And again, uh, not many people would know this, but more than 50% of uh, all emails, marketing emails sent in this part of the world go through your uh, servers, right? So... That was an amazing start. I, I I didn't know that it was this big. So again, what kind of journey has happened from content or dot-com tech to now marketing technology? Again, how did you choose this space, first of all? Why this space? And what has been the journey in the last 20 years? So Netcore's origins were as a Linux mail server company. Just before I had sold India World, because we used to set up websites for companies. So we had these portals, plus we managed about 200 plus websites. Most of the corporates, their websites were hosted and managed by India World uh, at that time. And what they you know, started coming to us is saying, hey, we are getting inquiries on the internet, but we don't know how to manage these emails. In the early days, late uh, 90s. So then we uh, took cobbled together some open source software and made a Linux mail server for them. Exchange was just too expensive for most companies and uh, uh, businesses at that time. And uh, so between 90, after I sold India World and I spent a couple of years with SIFI, then I came back to what was Netcore at that time. It was a cousin of mine who was running it. We had sort of separated out the tech part of it from the content uh, business. And in the first 10 years of Netcore, we just did not grow. We were stuck at about one crore in revenue. I tried a lot of things, but almost everything, all of them, all of those ideas failed. I... I tried to create the world's first blog search engine. I thought blogs would be very big. We created a thin client, thick server software. Naming computers were a problem in India, too expensive. We created for a small business, we created a full uh, sort of server in a box. We called it Pragati. But none of these, so we created things, but I couldn't sell any of these things. And then in 2007, I realized, look, you know, this is not the way to, to run a business. I mean, we were just not growing. And then I decided to professionalize the management. I brought in on a CEO and he started, it was very different from me. And I said, look, you know, 
I can create things, but I'm unable to convert them into revenue. And so our first CEO, Abhijit, he uh, drove the sales part of it. And then the pivots had also been happening. So we, we got into enterprise SMS. A few years later, we started doing mass emailing. Again, customers came to us and said, we've got these email lists. But now what we want to do is now send out uh, mails to our lists. You know, companies like India Today, et cetera, you know, which had global audiences, they want to send out emails. Help us do that. So it's almost like if you keep listening to customers, they keep telling you what you what they want. And that's how started our journey in SMS and email. And that journey, of course, has continued. We still do SMS, we still do email. But through the years, we moved up the stack. So that then the in 2014-15, our thinking was that you know, while we are doing the communications layer, uh, we started hearing the word MarTech. And uh, this whole automation element started coming into play. Campaigns had to be automated, et cetera. And so we started building out the automation layer, analytics layer, and then we've done a few acquisitions over the last few years uh, to grow the full stack MarTech solution. So communications, engagement, and product experience all put together into a single uh, platform. And uh, in a way, it's been a, we've never really, I've never thought very deeply about what needed to be done next. I think, unlike India world, where I had a very clear vision when I started, here it is more of, okay, let's keep listening to what customers want. One of the key things for the last at least 12, 13 years has been profitability is very important. So no burning cash because we've never managed again to raise capital. I think that's a unique distinction. 30 years as an entrepreneur, I've never managed to raise external capital. I've talked with zillions of VCs and PEs through the years. And my, my people keep saying that the problem is that I, I tell them the expected valuation in the first meeting. And if the deal does not happen, which is normally the case, always the case, I increase the expected valuation in the next meeting. So that's been a bit of a problem. But anyway, uh, if you can't raise capital, you've got to be profitable. So there are no two ways about it, which has helped us, you know, keep the focus sharp. So we don't spread ourselves too thin, et cetera. And it's been a great success. We are now, Netcore is $85 million uh, plus in revenue. India, Southeast Asia, uh, Middle East is very, very strong, expanding now in US and Europe. The same products, basically B2B SaaS will work for B2C companies uh, there also. So we're getting good revenues there. We'll be doing a pretty large acquisition, which we'll announce in the next uh, few days, which will expand our footprint in the US. And the plan is that hopefully in the next nine to 12 months or so, we can IPO in India. We are 25% owned by employees. So had a very large ESOP program from the early days. And uh, it's a journey which I hope will continue because in Netcore, you know, to borrow a phrase from Jim Collins, what I want to do is to build an enduring great company. So built to last company, an institution which can survive even without its founder. So basically build in the right processes and hopefully it's something which can be enduring and a, a profitably growing company over time. And the word I used to describe both India World and Netcore, I, I coined it about two, two, three years ago, is Proficon. So basically, uh, everyone talked unicorn, Sarish. <laughs> so in, I, I said, you know, look, no one talks things about us. You know, we are profitable, but no one wants to talk about us just because we have not raised capital. Mm. So I said, okay, we are profitable. We are uh, private. We are promoter bootstrapped and we are highly valuable. And that's where the word Proficon came along. And I started writing a lot of essays on my blog to show how Proficons were different. My, my own journey, stories from my journey. And um, hopefully I'll have a book coming out maybe end of the year or early next year, 
on how to build a proficon and some of my own experiences you know for other entrepreneurs to follow uh, because i think it's a very different mindset as an entrepreneur when you want to build a company which is profitable and not raise external capital till you can avoid it i think that will be extremely valuable rajesh i look forward to that book you definitely have a buyer <laughs> thanks uh, let me there, there's so much to unpack there i think a lot of uh, good nuggets of wisdom in that that particular answer so i'm going to spend a little bit of time uh, diving deep into that first was i mean it didn't happen by design but it happened that you didn't raise capital right that meant that the organization's outcomes and the way the progress has happened over the many years is markedly different versus say a vc funded fast growing uh, startup some might even you know try to make the distinction between a tech startup which is growth at all cost versus tech business which is profitable growing at the right pace or growing slowly so there are multiple ways of looking at this i want to understand now that you have gone through this and i, I one of my earliest guests in the podcast was uh, shridhar vembu again another uh, fantastic example of how to build uh, multi billion dollar businesses without raising capital i think i learned a lot from him as well so first question to you in this context would be given a choice right? let's say in this environment where a lot of fund is available like funds are available let's say given a choice should a new entrepreneur try to bootstrap first and not scale especially in businesses where speed sometimes equals survival right how do how should a entrepreneur who is in a consumer business for example consumer tech think about bootstrapping versus not right and secondly in a in a bootstrap environment how do you how do you build companies that last as you mentioned when in certain cases the winner takes all mindset comes into picture personally i believe if you ask my opinion i believe that no business is winner takes all there is enough wealth to be made and opportunity value to be created in any part of the world but i would love to hear your thoughts on you know winner takes all kind of mindset and burn and grow kind of mindset sometimes it may be necessary but are there exceptions or places where it is important and necessary and how do you think about building businesses to that last while keeping in mind the the opportunities at hand very good points harish uh, so unpack them uh, one by one i think the choice of bootstrapping or not in some ways uh, it's a lot of the mindset has to be an entrepreneur see because you're making fundamentally different choices and bootstrapping does not necessarily mean compromising on growth and i'll, I'll address that because i think there is good growth and bad growth mm -hmm. um, that i think also has to be kept in mind now when we uh, see in my case what had happened in some ways was that in india world there was very limited capital available in the 90 in mid 90s even though vcs had reached out to me for various reasons deals did not happen and one of the reasons i could actually uh, be little firm on the valuation and what i wanted uh, was because we were profitable so i was under no pressure to actually accept terms which would be unfavorable to me because i know i didn't have to worry about meeting payroll at the end of the month relying on external capital to meet payroll and therefore we also ran a very frugal organization then i realized that is also the nature see i mean for me even when i look at capital one should never distinguish between an investor's uh, money or your own personal money i mean i would ask myself even if i raise the money would i be able to splurge 
uh, money on front page ads in newspapers and you know buying mm. up hundred holdings, etc. And it was not the way. My belief in India world always was that you know money can get you get your visitor to your website once, but it's the content that you have which will get him back the second time. So it was almost like you had. I worked very hard on getting the content right. Yeah. And because I was not sort of worried about investors, etc., I could focus almost entirely on the business. Of course, I did those conversations, but I didn't have someone sitting on me and saying, hey, you know, show me you have X visitors and, you know, show me 20% growth month on month or quarter on quarter. And India where we almost spent no money on advertising. I think I probably took out two ads in the whole five years, which was there. It was all word of mouth because the product was very good. In fact, for the first, I think almost two years, I would personally reply to every email that came in and we had a feedback link on every page. So I think if as a entrepreneur, uh, if one can just listen to what, what your customers want rather than, because otherwise the whole focus in when you start a company is, okay, now I'm going to raise funding. Once you get the funding in, then it's the next round of capital, next round of capital. And that's a treadmill. I think. I see entrepreneurs basically spending more than half their time because you need to spend the money to be able to then get the next round. And therefore, the cycle of decisions that you make are very different than you would if you would do as, an, as a bootstrapped uh, entrepreneur. Now, there, I agree with you fully that there are many businesses where you will need to raise capital because uh, you will have to spend the money upfront. And it's a very competitive market now. You know, there are, there's a lot of capital. Capital now is basically almost like a commodity. You know, the problem today is talent. It's not as much capital. But also then one has to look inside and decide what is your mindset as an entrepreneur? Are you comfortable spending a lot of this money? And I realized I was not. You know, so uh, very early, even in the early days of India world. And what we did was because we didn't have capital, Arish, we got into website development. It was a very smart decision because when we did the websites, I could create a revenue stream. So first it kept the services revenue coming in in the early days before the advertising started coming in. And second is later on, once we did the website, we could also I could also persuade those same companies to put money into advertising uh, because then I could tell them that, look, you've made it, but people need to know about you. And I, so I had a captive audience in some ways. So I think you tend to think differently. You think tend to think more creatively uh, if you do not have capital. Now, my advice to entrepreneurs would be that try and not get into verticals which are very capital intensive because it's a very difficult game to win, frankly. You know, today when you have customer acquisition costs going up so rapidly, I mean, almost uh, doubling every year or so in many for many D2C companies, it's a very difficult game to win because there'll always be someone who can probably throw in more capital. Instead, what is the innovation that you can bring out? What is something different uh, that you can do? And the path to profitability, I think is, is really forces entrepreneurs to, I think, making a set of choices which build a better business long-term. So it's like, you know, good cholesterol, bad cholesterol, there's good growth, bad growth. I mean, it's very easy. If, I, if you spend the money, you will get the growth. Okay. The question is, can you, rather than making it an or decision, what I call an or conundrum. Can you make it an and? Can you be profitable and growing? Maybe you will not grow at 70, 80% or double every year, but I think you'll get 30, 40% growth, which you can do consistently, which I think lays the right foundations over time. So I think 
it's really the choice that entrepreneurs have to make. Luckily, in the B2B SaaS world, there is not really a winner-take-all. In some B2C segments, uh, there are uh, winner-take-all type of things. And I tell entrepreneurs that, look, you know, there are lots of niches which you can get into, which are very good, which will be growing. Uh, and spending the first one to two years listening to customers, getting the product market fit right, is probably going to pay off much more in the long run than spending half your time, you know, trying to raise capital from investors. Makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. Very clear. And I think the I, I love the word proficons. I, I'm going to use them more. I think in this uh, day and age, especially in all the tech hubs, whether it be the Valley or or Bangalore or you know Shanghai, I think there is that. No, I wouldn't say all of all of us, but many of us tend to get lured into the fast growth fast burn kind of business model. The ones that last when the, the tides turn are the ones that have what you said, right? The product market fit and the customer love from day one. So very clear. And I think hearing this from someone who has done it two times over, I think that is also very uh, helpful. Any design choices you make? First one is the mindset, obviously, that you have decided to make it, you know, bootstrapped and Proficon oriented. But from uh, aside, aside, aside of mindset, any design choices you would make to thrive in this Proficon model? It might be hiring, it might be process design, it might be product design, it might be choice of uh, problem statement, uh, niche, whatever. Anything that comes to mind from a design choice perspective? I think the key, there are two key questions. Because if one is not raising capital, because that is the key. Money is the oxygen for building a business out. Uh, you will need some amount of startup capital. Now that either has to come from you or from sort of friends and family, whichever way. So that's the first thing. And then second thing is on an ongoing basis, how are you going to create a path to profitability faster? Okay. So I think this, so it all starts with what is uh, what am I going to do to basically start generating revenues faster? And those revenues are such that I can basically meet my cash flow needs every month. Okay, so that's the first design choice that has to be done. So just to go back in India world, what we did was I had some amount of capital, uh, which took us through to the first about year. I had, you know, we were a very lean team, very small team. Early days, we were seven or eight people. Salaries were not very high at that time. But then I started looking at websites uh, for uh, um, corporates early on. And I had to do a lot of education. I mean, I would go to come people and say, they all thought I was trying to sell a new TV channel. You know, no one had seen the internet at that time. And commercial access also was not available when we had launched. So, but I think that paid off big time. It took me probably two years to build a good revenue stream from websites, but I did not give up. So now the key thing in this is that for entrepreneurs who go down that path, figuring out how I'm going to be cash flow positive, I think is very, very important. Uh, so some initial capital plus uh, some amount of uh, revenue stream, which is there. Now, the temptation could be in many businesses to go down the services path because that is an easy path that is there. That should only be a short-term measure. It should not become a core because then your product dreams will go away. In fact, the more deeper you go into services, you know, because all of the, all, because that's revenues today, you know, so you'll, you'll, you'll get sucked out, out there. So I think a lot of clarity is required from the entrepreneur you know, and, and bravery, I think, because this is a harder path. You see everyone else raising money. And it was a very tough period for me in, 
say 99, when I would see competitors run full page ads, holdings, etc. And, but what I was confident about was that I had the better product. I knew that, you know, the, the recipes on, on Bhavarchi, the cricket scores, the search engine, the, the Samachar site, which was there, and the other things that we had, were all great magnets. And for me, it was a simple equation. You know, time is finite of an entrepreneur. If you're spending a lot of time with, with investors, that's time you're not spending with customers. It's as simple as that. And customers are the ones who are going to pay you at the end. And that's how you build a lasting relationship. So I think that's the first fundamental design choice that should be done. That what is your craft the path to profitability? Okay, because otherwise you can't survive. Otherwise you might, you'll have to raise capital very quickly. I think the second thing is that you need a team which can be with you for a longish period. Okay, because, and that is where creating a larger ESOP pool, I think makes a very big difference. So there is alignment that, you know, that you look, we are in it together because you have to trust other people also. I mean, when if you're out listening and talking to a lot of customers, someone's going to make sure that they're running their day-to-day -day operations and so on. And ensuring that the employees are also the key members of the staff are aligned. And that is where about 15 years ago, I set aside 25% uh, stop for employees in Netcore. I said, when Netcore does well, and it's taken, of course, a little bit longer than I would have liked, but Netcore does well, I want everyone else to benefit significantly from this. Hmm. And otherwise, it's, and especially now in the last 12, 15 months, as we have seen, a lot of it is basically, you know, people auctioning them to the highest bidder in some ways, rather than hmm. alignment to the mission of a company. The third thing I think is that you have to basically share with your key people what is the deep purpose. No? So we are not here to just make money. Money is an outcome of what will happen. And I think it's very critical there because... See, if, if you, I mean, you know, my wife told me this once, if you run after money, money will run further away from you. Hmm. So do the right thing. So we are not chasing valuations. You want to build a team for the, uh, you want to build a business for the long term. Uh, you want to make sure that your team is aligned and they share the common purpose, okay, that we are out here to make a difference. Okay, it's, the money is not the sole driving factor. And today when I look at, in, 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 in Netcode, I mean, what I try and tell people, of course, not everyone believes. So, hmm. you know, that works as a filtration thing also. That uh, And this will take us into the marketing thing, but I'll just leave one sentence that my belief is that the next decade and beyond is going to be the era of MarTech. Hmm. Okay, because 50% of ad tech budgets are basically being blown away, are being wasted. That's $200 billion waste, ad waste hmm. every year on reacquisition and wrong acquisition. Today, 10% of marketing budgets are spent on MarTech. And that is the real big opportunity. And that 10% can go up to 30, 50, 70%. Mm. Because whole money is getting spent on ad tech because brands are not taking care of their existing customers. Because everyone wants to know, naya, naya. Mm. How many new people did you get? But what about your existing customers who are getting churned? And that is sort of the, the big purpose that I try and share with my colleagues that we are in it at the right time. That over the next 10, 15 years, it's going to be about existing customers, growth, cross-sell, and your customers getting you new customers through referrals, through the data that they provide, their best customers. They are your best uh, advocates, especially in a world where people are connected to hundreds of people. So again, 
because I don't have capital, it forces me to think differently. <laughs> it forces me to go deeper into the purpose of what I want to create, hire the right people. So it's a different design choices. You are absolutely right. It's than what, say, a company with unlimited uh, cash would basically uh, make. Awesome. Understood. And hiring the right people, de delving deep into the purpose and focusing on solving retention more than acquisition. These are all the right design choices and, and well articulated. Thanks, Rajesh. I'm going to switch gears here. I, I do want to talk about your recent writings on crypto and DAO and all, but I'll come to that towards the end of the, the talk. Let's talk about the country and your work with the government and then now. So again, I read through a lot of it, so I'll quickly summarize and you please correct me if I'm wrong. But around 2012 or 2014, you got into thinking about how you could help India become a better place. You worked with the uh, BJP government back then. I read your article, right? 275 in 2014, was it? Right. Yes. So how, how to get to majority win at that point in time. Then you worked together, created this platform called Neeti Digital. There is also an outcome of that, which is India Awards. There is a data science platform there also. So a lot of good things have happened. Then I've seen that you have come full circle or, or rather changed a bit of your perspective that actually any government is is uh, going to do the same thing, but actually less government is better. So freedom will come from economic freedom and economic freedom will come from, uh, you know, less governance. So I think this is the, I, I saw an evolution, right? In the last six to seven years of your thinking that first it was how to enable a particular government to succeed and win. And then now that you probably have worked more closely with them as, a, as an entrepreneur than anyone else that I know. And then that has evolved into actually government's job is to do the, 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 the critical tasks that only a government could do. So for example, peacekeeping, making sure ownership rights are enforced and so on. But for everything else, especially for economic prosperity, the job of the government is to stay away. Right. So one, please talk us through this evolution of, you know, how you got here. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a very interesting evolution that has happened. And talk about uh, Nai Disha and how that started and, and then shut down. And then third thing, please talk about, it's a very simple question, the third one. I'm, I'm, an, I'm a, a corporate executive, you know, maybe I'll be an entrepreneur someday. I'm well-educated. I have the means to make a difference. What should I be doing? Like anybody who's listening to this podcast, who's well-equipped, well-educated, has the means, is thinking about these things. What is the best way for someone with leverage to make a huge difference in the country? Great questions. And um, Harish, I think you did a lot of reading and you've summarized pretty much everything I've done. <laughs> in a few things is beautifully done. So I was never politically inclined. And it sort of... Uh, I'll tell you the origins because it's very important because, you know, how do people sure. like us get on, get into, involved in something different? Yeah. Uh, it was, I think, in late 2008, a friend of mine asked me a question. He said, Rajesh, your son is three years old. And, we, you know, at that time, a lo lot of things were going wrong in India, uh, mm -hmm. in general, politically, economically, and so on. He said, when he grows up yeah. and asks you, Papa, you had the time, you had the money. Why didn't you do something about it? What will you answer? And the sort of question stayed with me. Hmm. And as happens many times when you're pondering about something, 
you know, like the alchemist, you know, the universe sort of conspires to guide you or help you. Hmm. A month later, I met uh, a senior person from the BJP. They were looking at uh, us for an SMS campaign, Piyush Goel. And we got talking. I mean, they had come to evaluate us as a vendor. And I said, you know, there are a lot of people like me, just exactly what you just said, in fact. I would like to help out, make the country a better place. Many of us believe that the BJP is the better party, the party with the difference. What is it that we can do? And that led to the creation of Friends of BJP mm. for the 2009 election. Of course, the BJP got clobbered badly in mm. the election. They wanted nothing to do with uh, no introspection. After the election, I tried to, and they were all professionals. A lot of professionals came together to help right. uh, the BJP at that time. But there was no sort of dialogue after that. But for me, my interest had been peaked. You know, I was interested saying, okay, what is it that we can do? And our family had voted BJP. So there was sort of no question of looking at the Congress. And I never understood the economic policies in as much depth as I do now. Mm. Uh, and then I, I said, okay, you know, we were all techie. The techie, what do you do? You look at data first. <laughs> so I started looking at the electoral data. And I realized it's in a total mess. You know, Election Commission puts up like PDFs. Um, they mean they, they would take Excel files, print them out, rescan them, and put them as PDFs. Wow. I mean, it was amazing at that time. So I finally uh, decided to create an election site where anyone could get access, indiavotes.com. The 10-year-old design, but it's a very good in terms of all the data that's there. Uh, but also at that time, someone introduced me to Narendra Modi. And I then met him uh, in Gujarat, and I was absolutely blown away. I mean, here is a person who listened more than he spoke. Meetings with him would start absolutely on time. He would not interrupt you when you're interacting with him. He would not be looking at his watch and saying, okay, now I got to go for the next meeting, etc." You go for the, you meet him the second time and he will follow up with you on mm. what you were supposed to do the previous time, all from memory, very open to new ideas. And uh, uh, that sort of convinced me that he's the person who we should work towards for leading India. And I, the data analytics had led me to the belief that the BJP could get a majority on its own and what it needed to do. I was the first person, what you mentioned, I wrote that in 2011, that article, three years before the election, that how okay, BJP can get a majority on its own. And at that time, the highest that ever won was 282. And 272 plus was a distant number uh, at that time. And uh, the other decision which I made is that I will work from the outside. So I invested about uh, $5 million of my own money, built a 100% team from scratch. So I'm good at doing these startup things. And we worked in media, data analytics, volunteering through those uh, three years. I did not want to take money from the BJP because I know how they treat, how any political party treats vendors. I mean, <laughs> you don't want to be a vendor to them. Uh, so I had my own freedom in that sense. I did what I could, but from the outside. The BJP won and I, I was very clear that once the election is over, I will go back to Netcore. My job is done. I had no political aspirations, uh, as it were. And my... Belief was that from the little that I'd read, et cetera, during those years, uh, that uh, Modi would be like a Lee Kuan Yew or a Deng Xiaoping who transformed their nations and made people rich. Now, till that time, I did not have a good understanding of, you know, why were Indians poor? I just assumed that, you know, a good leader will do the right things and make it happen. But I think in the first few months after the 2014 elections, I saw the language changing. Uh, I saw that the people, around the prime minister were not the laterals, you know, but the same politicians and secretaries who basically had caused the problems in the first place in the past. And so then I said, okay, this idea of transformation is not going to work. 
I mean, in India, it's not going to get transferred. And then I taught myself economics. So I attended conferences, did a lot of reading. I had a, a friend who explained to me the concepts. And that is where, because see, in our education, we never, I mean, and my education was all engineering. I mean, economics and all were subjects to be sort of not even looked at you know, at that time. So I had no understanding of, you know, why some countries are rich. Why is India poor? Simple question. Why is India poor? And the traditional answer was, oh, we are a large country, population and all of that. And then I realized that, look, look more people is actually a great boon. The answer is economic freedom. India is not rich. Indians are not rich because Indians are not free. Now, what is freedom? How do you build on these ideas? So that's where this classical liberal ideas, you know, starting from Adam Smith, Hayek, Friedman, James Buchanan, etc. And it's very logical. At times, the ideas are counterintuitive because the natural inclination is that the poor person needs help. It's not that the poor person needs freedom. And therefore, you get more and more government interventions. Governments have to take away money by force. Governments don't create money. They take away from people. And then you have to have discretionary power. So it's, it's a sliding slope after that. And in a way, as my friend put it, India, basically, Indians never got freedom. We got independence. The skin color of our rulers changed, but the rules did not change in 1947. Hmm. And therefore, you know, there's no reason why we should not have been fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 per capita income. Instead, we are at $2,000 per capita. Hmm. So that was the genesis behind I tried to then create a movement for prosperity in the country. There was a very interesting idea called Dhanwapasi that, uh, again, a friend of mine, Atanude, came up with, and we tried to take that message out to people, basically saying that, look, you know, there's a lot of wealth uh, in India, $20 trillion, but it's locked up uh, under the government control. You know, so land, minerals, PSUs, and if that wealth could be returned back to people, you know, they can create their own path to prosperity. And it also shrinks government, and it's the right thing to do. But I could not uh, make a dent. So uh, in 2019, I, I shut uh, uh, Naidisha down because I realized I could not make a dent. Just making a few videos and having some interesting ideas has done to change the minds of 100 crore Indians. But I continue to write about many of these ideas. I do think deeply. Uh, and I do believe that uh, we need a bottom-up movement in this country for prosperity. It's not going to be... The, the great leader model has not worked. I mean, very few countries are fortunate to have that great leader model. You know, Singapore had one, Hong Kong had one, and Copperthwaite. He was a bureaucrat, but he did amazing things in the 70s. Deng uh, Xiaoping, of course, uh, in China. And I think India has sort of lost the opportunity. The government is expanding, and it will not create uh, prosperity. Uh, so it's something which I want to get back to at some point of time. But it's got to be a decentralized movement. And that's where the idea of a DAO comes in. I, I didn't have all this terminology three, four years ago. But if you just, again, if you analyze numbers, it's very interesting. BJP's core support base in the country is probably 25%. Out of 100, uh, say, uh, 100 crore voters, 25 crore voters are hardcore BJP. All the opposition and regional parties put together is about 15 crore. So that's 40 crore. 30 crore people in India are not voting. And 30 crore people fall in two categories, what I call floaters and wasters. So 15 crore make up their mind just before the election, whom to vote for, because you know, it's that Jitne Wali party. And 15 crore people vote for small parties and candidates who have no opinion. So the wasters. So in effect, 
60 crore people in India are what I call NANVs, non-aligned, non-voters. So can we use technology? I mean, again, this is like a typical techie construct. You know? Can we use technology? Like if we can have money without a bank, can we have a government without a party? You know, so like a, imagine a crypto sort of, and 10 crore Indians have adopted crypto without anyone telling them to, you know, if in the last uh, couple of years, probably uh, five, seven, the number of DMAT account holders in India has doubled in the last year. So our uh, last couple of years. Now, that's where the thinking started that, look, if we can create an enabling environment and persuade people, maybe people can come together, pick up their own candidates, create a Lok Sabha of independence which can then do the right things. It requires one term for a new government, which is basically a prosperity government to basically bring about change in this country. And there is, I keep saying, there is no reason why every Indian should have been 10, 20 times, or probably 30 times wealthier than they are now. It's the fault of our politicians and political parties. That's what we got to change. Now, to answer the last part of what you had asked, what can people like us do in corporates? When I look back at my sort of eight, nine years I spent on the periphery of politics, Arish, uh, eventually I probably didn't accomplish anything. Um, I failed in what I wanted to do because the outcome is India, India is on the same trajectory of sort of extreme welfareism and socialism and government interventions as it was before. But I learned a lot. That was the only way I perhaps could have learned. And I think if uh, many of us if all, uh, start understanding that, look, it is in our interest, it is in our vested interest to create a richer India. And the richer India is not a zero-sum game. You know, it's not that, okay, to make some Indians rich, you'll have to take money away from the poor. I think it is for every business. Imagine if the per capita income of Indians was not $2,000, but maybe $10,000 like the Chinese. Every company would be doing so well out here. There's huge wealth creation opportunities ahead. So I think it's, it's linked to the fortunes of businesses also. Businesses should not stay away when we have bad governance and bad governments. And I believe digital is the only hope for India, that today it is possible to spread ideas through digitally. Yeah, in 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 autocratic countries or in, under authoritarian governments, they can shut down a few people who speak up. But if there were 100 people who spoke up, if there were 10,000 people who spoke up, they cannot shut us down. So if we can come together and say, look, I think it is up to the younger people, the digital entrepreneurs in India, to actually lay the foundations for a freer and richer India, because no one else can. The bottom of the pyramid, they do not have the ability, I mean, they are looking for their next meal. I mean, it'll shock us all when I say that 800 million Indians are being given free food by the government every day. I mean, that's how poor we are as a nation. And this is changeable. In one term, we can actually set in place a nation which can become irreversibly prosperous, you know, on the path to irreversible prosperity. And uh, I think entrepreneurs should realize that it is in their self-interest. That's the only reason people should do it. It's in our self-interest to actually make a better country. It'll create more wealth for our investors, our businesses, and ourselves and our employees. Irreversibly prosperous. I love that term. <laughs> <laughs> I'll remember that.
So we are almost out of time, Rajesh. I'll just do a few quick questions, if I may. Your your routine, how do you write regularly? How do you find time? What does that part of your life look like? What does a day look like? So I wake up every day at 4.30. Uh, every day, including weekends. Uh, because the morning time is when I do my writing. That 5 o'clock to sort of 6 o'clock weekends, I don't go for a walk, so it's a little bit more time. It's what I call my me time. And it's it's... You know, when the flow happens, basically, you know, it's what they call the flow. But the one thing that I do to make this time productive is that the night before, I will plan out what I want to write. So I have typically have a lot of thoughts. And it's quite fascinating, you know, that once you have this zone, and which means that, you know, you sleep early, uh, sleep by 9.45, not later than that. Because after 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, then we are all into our WhatsApps and you know, phone calls coming and so on. And that's the way life is. But I think for me, when I write, it's about giving me giving me clarity. I write for myself. I don't worry about whether other people will read it or not. But writing for me is, you know, forces me to do reading, thinking, clarifying ideas, and so on. So that's that sort of morning time zone is when I do writing. I used to blog a lot from 1999 to 2012 every day. And then I stopped because of the political work that I started doing. And then come April 2020, when the pandemic started, I restarted writing and I think the I regret having stopped for those seven years in between and I mean it, when I look back I loved writing uh, mm. I just enjoyed and uh, something new every day uh, hopefully people also benefit from that amazing your thoughts on web3 and crypto and DAO and where we are headed so I'm one of the few who saw the early days of the you know, 94, mm. 95, I was in the thick of the action as an insider, not just reading about it. Right. And I think what the world of Web3 offers. So if you leave aside the cryptocurrencies and the decentralized finance things, I think the Web3 is really the making of a new infrastructure. The decentralized world, the, a new kind of organizational construct with the DAOs which are there. And it's very early days. We are barely a couple of years into this revolution. And... There's a professor I remember who told me in early 2000, I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, Jitendra Singh from Wharton at that time. He said the real value creation happens when you, when the second order and third order effects of technology start coming into play. And they were very prescient. This was probably around early 2000s when, you know, the first generation of the internet people were seeing, hey, you know, what all these, the downfall had come off, you know, NASDAQ had crashed and so on. But, and then you look at what happened after that. Look at the wealth creation, Google, Facebook, you know, now of course, TikTok, uh, the whole SaaS revolution, second order, third order companies. And I think it's going to be the same here. You have the best of minds. You have amazing amount of capital being uh, thrown in, being made available to smart entrepreneurs uh, to build out the underlying layer. I think what we have to start thinking that the underlying technologies are going to get built. Now, how do we use the Web3 layer to solve real-world problems. And what I've been thinking about are two problems. How do you solve the problem of attention recession, you know, which plagues, uh, which is a challenge for both brands and for the customers? You know, too many messages on one side and me messages from brands don't get trimmed. So what is an alternative to that? So how do you uh, create basically the idea of atomic rewards and so on, which I've been writing on my blog, that's number one. And second is on the political side, how do you solve the problem of voter aggregation? And there was 60%. Can you create sort of Web3 tokens as an incentive to, to get them? Some of these themes are what I'm exploring. But I really believe that this is a fundamental shift in the way 
for the, for the future. It's a new internet getting created right in front of our own eyes. And don't get too, I mean, I just recommend people don't get too caught up in the Bitcoin price and everything of that every day. Think deeply and answer a simple question. What is centralized in the world today, which can be decentralized? And I think if we take that as a starting point, the underlying infra is there uh, in Web3, which will enable us to solve those problems. Makes sense. What is centralized today that can be decentralized tomorrow? Or uh, to rephrase that, if permission trust, permissionless trust was available in, in different industries, what would they look like? Absolutely. Beautifully put. Yeah. Cool. Any books on any topic that we spoke today, Rajesh, that you would recommend to, to us? I think there are two books that I can suggest. One is, of course, the full Jim Collins series. Mm -hmm. But his, uh, the last book that he came up with, Beyond Entrepreneurship 2.0, the fantastic read. It basically gets the best ideas from all of his books. One of the chapters has a map, which essentially uh, gets the best ideas and the new, it gives a new vocabulary. You know, the flywheel, the 20 mile march, built to last, the importance of luck, how to define luck. Hmm. Uh, a lot of these aspects sort of come into play. And I think it's for any entrepreneur wanting to build uh, uh, what he calls an enduring great company. I think it's a fantastic read. Another very good book, very different, which I would recommend, not known much, is uh, came out, I think, a year or two ago, is I think leading lessons from the Titans or learning from them. Basically, it takes the old economy companies and what can you learn from them? And there is one chapter which I would especially recommend is uh, the chapter on a company called Danaher. And they are one of the best companies when it comes to doing acquisitions. Because consolidation, if you want to grow, you have to look at doing acquisitions, right? And they are the one company which has done it, right? They've also built uh, internally what is called a Danaher business system of continuous improvement. So even for any company, how do you improve on a regular basis? So it's not that it's just the new economy companies who can teach things. I think uh, they have taken, I think, eight or ten of the old economy companies and shown what, uh, are, these are timeless lessons, basically, uh, which can then be learned by us entrepreneurs and senior managers who want to build great companies. Wonderful. And last question, Rajesh, you have a <clears throat> large billboard in the middle of the busiest street in the world and you can put one sentence out there for everyone to see. What would that sentence read? Okay, so I'll give you a sentence, but I, I probably will have to rephrase it a little bit and we can work on that. There are good guys, good agencies who can do it. But basically <laughs> the, the theme is this. See, mm -hmm. a lot of what holds people back is basically the fear of failure. Hmm. The sentence should basically be, if you fail, it is not you who have failed. It's your idea which has failed. Don't give up. Amazing. I have the, the The rephrase of this I've heard, Rajesh, is failure is an event, not a person. Brilliant. I thought that was, uh, that, that was a good way of saying it. Sorry, I interrupted you. Please go. No, Arish, I, I have failed I, and I listed it once in one of my blog posts 30 times in my life. There are probably two, two and a half successes, but 30 plus failures. And I have not let that hold me back. Each failure is a difficult episode. It's, it's tough, but like the idea failed. It's not me. I'm not a failure. If I'd done that, I would never have started India World. Amazing. On that note, Rajesh, it was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for sharing all these ideas. I absolutely enjoyed the conversation and I'm sure my listeners will as well. Much appreciated and thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Arish. Great conversation. Thank you.